The more we try to stay comfortable today, the more uncomfortable we will be tomorrow. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. What's up, party peeps? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. Don't call me Andrea. I am a huge shit show, and I hit my adult child bottom, or as we like to say around here, butt, my adult child butt, back in 2018 after dating two guys named Brian that were both alcoholics. Now, somebody might be saying, hey, you know, you can't call someone else an alcoholic, only that person can can deem their, themselves an alcoholic. Yeah, I'm pretty confident, not, not pretty confident, I'm, I'm 100% positive that they were alcoholics. I mean, I'm, I've been calling myself an alcoholic since I was uh, 14, 13. The first time I said, hi, my name is Andrea. Uh, I'm an alcoholic was in middle school. <laughs> well, actually, when I was 11, I think I said, hi, um, I'm Andrea and I don't want to be an alcoholic. Uh, and it was within a year and a half Then I then said, I am Andrea and I am an alcoholic. If you are not familiar with the tale of two Bryans or my story, highly recommend you go back to the beginning and listen to those first handful of episodes because that's where I go through my story, which in my opinion is a a highly entertaining story and really sets the foundation for what the hell we got going on here in this shit show podcast. So today I am joined by Michelle Ferris. She is a therapist who specializes in codependency and she she knows her shit. She has done a lot of recovery herself. She's very well versed in the 12 steps and we're talking about a bunch of things. But one thing in particular that I think is interesting or of note is codependency and friendships. So we often talk about codependency as it relates to romantic relationships, but what is just as common and painful, but not as widely discussed is codependency in our friendships. But first, I wanted to share an aha moment that I've had in the past week or so. Some of y'all on the Patreon have already heard this, and I did make a reel, an Instagram reel, about this briefly. So I have been trying to connect with my inner child, journaling with my inner child. Well, I guess first I should back up. So uh, a few weeks ago, we had on Susan Anderson. If you have not listened to that episode, you need to go listen to it because it was amazing. And so we talked about the inner child versus the outer child. And so for anyone who didn't listen to that episode yet, so our inner child, this is the part of us that feels. This is the emotional part of us. This is the innocent and pure and vulnerable part of ourselves. We then have our outer child. Our outer child outwardly manifests whatever the inner child is feeling. So the inner child is the feeling and our outer child is the behavior. Our outer child acts out in response to whatever the inner child is feeling, but not in a good way, in a self-sabotage way. So this is the part of you that breaks your diet, that uh, procrastinates, that gets into the wrong relationships. And so why is it important that we separate the two? Why is it important that we have an inner child and an outer child? Because the inner child is not doing anything wrong. The feelings that the inner child is feeling are valid. This isn't about learning how to not feel. This is about learning how to cope with these emotions in a healthier way. And so in her book, Taming the Outer Child, I'm not going to go through uh, the whole process that is laid out in the book. But again, highly recommend you get it. But in a nutshell, essentially what we're doing here is first we're identifying a goal that we have been having a hard time achieving or just a a pain point in our life. Uh, Something that we want that we have not been getting or something that we've been trying to accomplish that we haven't. And then it's looking at all the various ways that our outer child is self-sabotaging us from achieving these goals. 
Through that, we are then pushing the outer child and pushing the behaviors out of the way so that we can communicate directly with our inner child to figure out what really are those feelings, what is going on with the inner child that is causing us to act in self-sabotaging, destructive ways. So I have been journaling with my inner child and asking her how she feels about the procrastination and the self-sabotage that I've been experiencing as it relates to my future, my career, this podcast, moving things along, growing this business. And what she told me is that when I say I'm going to get certain things done the next day and I don't, that it feels the same way as when my mom would tell me as a little girl that she was going to stop drinking and she didn't or she wouldn't. And it was this light bulb moment for me that when we are habitually disappointed as kids, we then go on to habitually disappoint ourselves because that's what's familiar. You know, when my mom would say those things to me, when she was would promise me that she was going to stop drinking, I know that she meant it. She, I knew that she was not just feeding me words, but she was just suffering from a disease. And it's the same thing with me. It's like I fully intend to, to do these things the next day. It's not just lip service. And yet day after day after day, I don't follow through. And so what I've been doing since then is every night when I'm journaling with her, I am telling her what I am going to accomplish the next day and that I'm going to check back in with her the next day to let her know that I accomplished what I said I would. And so I've been doing that every day. And there's been one time where I did not do one of the things that I said that I was going to do. So then when I checked back in, I told my inner child that I didn't do it and I didn't make any excuses and I didn't say, oh, I didn't get it done because of blah, 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 blah. I just owned it. I said, you know, I said that I was going to do this and I didn't and I'm sorry and I'll get it done tomorrow. It's working. Like it's I'm I'm getting the shit done that I say that I'm going to do. Bringing my inner child uh, into the picture and realizing how much I'm disappointing her and abandoning her. It's like the stakes are higher for some reason. The one thing with it, though, is that it needs to be baby steps. Don't promise your inner child the moon. Promise something that is tangible, because if we set the bar too high, we're going to freak out and we're not going to do it. So it's just baby steps. It's through that repetition that our inner child can come to trust us again and no longer letting the outer child run the show. You know, I've been pretty resistant, reluctant to do this inner child work. I mean, honestly, initially, I just thought it was dumb as shit. <laughs> like, I thought, like, this concept of inner child was was just silly. Uh, I then came to realize that it is extremely powerful and healing and beneficial, but I've been reluctant to do it. And so this interview with Susan was a real kick in the butt for me because I think that this is an area of recovery that I've kind of bypassed or avoided that is so, so crucial for us. Uh, so if you're one of those people that thinks the inner child stuff is, is dumb as shit, I get it. <laughs> I get it. And um, you'll you'll be ready to do it when you're ready to do it. All right, y'all. Time to get the show on the road. But first, how about you damn the join Patreon? This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. And this is where you can find an amazing group of shit shows who will get you, who love you, who will accept you. I know that there are so many people out there listening right now who want to join, who haven't. And I'm, I'm going to call one of those individuals out right now, okay? Connie. Connie sent me a message um, on Instagram. And she said, um, ho hoping she can get the, the courage to, to damn the join Patreon. 
How about you do that right now, Connie, okay? <laughs> how about you damn the join uh, Patreon, Connie? And how about all the other Connies out there? You do the, da- the same thing too. Patreon.com slash adult child. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at adult child pod. Last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. Thank you. All right, y'all. We have Michelle Ferris. She is a, um, you're a recovering shit show therapist. <laughs> that is probably the best description I've ever heard in my friggin' life. I just love that. Yes. yes. I walk the talk. Recovering shit show therapist who is a shit show herself, but also hit, helps the shit shows. Yes. We have to acknowledge the shit show. Otherwise, we're going to beat ourselves up. You know what? I always ask therapists, like, what should, for adult children, what should, what questions should they ask their therapist? But uh, you know what? I never thought about that. That should be it. Say, would you consider yourself a recovering shit show? And if they say no, right, then move it along, folks. Yeah. If they don't do their <laughs> own work, that's a major deal if they don't do their own work. Because then you know they're only in the academic part of it. They don't understand what it's like to be in the trenches of pain. And yeah, absolutely. And I just did a video on that, actually, because it's super, it's a question nobody thinks to ask. And you have to be careful how you ask it, because you can't really say, are you in therapy? Because they're going to be like, whoa, that's too personal. What's the requirement? The requi- Well, okay, this is the really bummer part is... You you can, as part of your 3000 hours to become a therapist, include your own therapy as towards it. 300 hours can count, but there's no requirement, get this, to have your own personal therapy to become a therapist, which to me is insane. What about, maybe it's just like what's recommended or like what would be best practices, but is there not some sort of requirement that you're having to, um, like bounce things off of like another therapist. Oh yeah. No, you definitely have supervision during your 3000 hours, but that's yeah, not but once you're in practice, nothing. Nope. Nothing. Nothing. When you said don't ask, like if they're in therapy, like you can ask and if they say no, then you, you can know. ask it. But what I would rather have them do, cause I want to set them up to win is to say, do you believe in doing your own work? Because that's an easier question. Someone's going to say, oh, yes, I do. And you'll you'll be able to tell by how they answer it. Because if they hesitate, you know that it's a no. So what if I were to say to you, I'm interviewing you and I'm saying, hey, yeah. um, what has recovery looked like for you in your own life? I'm asking you now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, for me, a big part is 12-step recovery. I mean, mm-hmm. I started two weeks before my 21st birthday. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I did therapy at the same time, but I don't think I would be where I am today if I just did therapy. It's just too big a leap. Uh, So I started in OA, Overeaters Anonymous, because I grew up using food to cope. And I did do ACA and Al-Anon at the same time, uh, for maybe six months and something in my gut said, I am not willing to dive into this program. (laughs) Um, but I didn't get a sponsor, which I know had a lot to do with not staying. Um, but I wasn't ready and I wasn't, I still thought at that point, my relationships were more problematic because of the other person, not because of me. Um, so it took 13 more years before I hit another bottom and said, okay, I got to cry uncle and start another program. But since I forgot to say, so she, you guys, she has a YouTube channel, Michelle Ferris. What was it? What was it? Rel- relationship, relationship therapist. therapist. <laughs> and she really focuses on, um, on codependency mm-hmm. and relationship skills. That was one thing. One of the feedback that I got from one of my community members is that he really liked hearing Arlena share about her relationship with her husband and how they've made it work over the years, how they've utilized the 12 steps in their relationship. But before we get to any of that stuff, let's talk about you for a little bit. So talk about the food stuff. When did that start showing up? Oh, I was born with it for sure. I mean, I literally have a picture of me with my, my bottle and my cousin's bottle. (laughs) So I, you know, there is a genetic predisposition for sure. Um, I had a lot of compulsive overeating on my dad's side of the family 
And only in my adulthood did I realize my mom actually, even though she wasn't a compulsive overeater, she was definitely a sugar addict. Mm. She's 93 and she still has a lot of sugar in her diet (laughs) rather than meals. Um, And so I just always relied on food to cope. Do you remember the moment when you had your first like realization that there was an issue? Um, yeah, I remember sitting on the toilet and seeing my thighs spread and looking at my thighs saying, Oh my God, I am really, something's wrong with me because I'm eating too much and I'm fat. Mm. How old were you? Oh, I was probably four. Mm. So, cause I didn't look like the other girls. I was always like 10 or 20 pounds heavier. And at that age, that's a lot of weight. Yeah. So, you know, absolutely. What were the dynamics like in food, like with food? I know you just mentioned your mom, mm-hmm. but like what were, what was the vibe around food in your family growing up? You know, there wasn't much of it because my mom was a single parent. She and my dad divorced when I was about 18 months old. So I would have two lifestyles when my dad was home because he was a captain of a cargo ship. So he would be away for six months and then home for six months. Like home, um, meaning like he had his own place or he would come and live with you guys? He did. No, he had his own place. But ironically, my mom and my dad were best friends hmm. growing up. So I got to see a lot of him when he came. But when he was home, we would eat out a lot, a lot of stuff around food because he was a compulsive overeater. Mm-hmm. When, when he was at sea, my mom didn't have a lot of food. So I would be, I was very motivated to babysit and have jobs because I wanted to pay for my food. Mm. Uh, so I was a major junk food eater and I just, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't, you know, as a kid, you don't really understand what you're doing, but I knew I was in pain and I was lonely and I knew the food helped me feel better. Mm -hmm. And so then talk about hitting, you said 21 is when you went to your first OA meeting. Yeah. So talk about like, what did your OA, what did your food addiction bottom look like? Well, I kind of was a, what's called a grazer. So I ate a little bit all day long. And then in between I would binge and just eat whatever I wanted. So I didn't go very long without grazer. It just sounds grazer. like an all, an all day eater. <laughs> kind of like I'd go maybe an hour, but not long. I would always be nibbling on something. And then my best friend at the time, we were binge buddies and because that's who I felt safe being friends with. Mm. And she said, let's go to an OA meeting. And I remember saying to her, let's go to Lion's Restaurant instead. (laughs) What an addict response, right? And she pushed me. And I'm so grateful she pushed me because I would have missed it. Mm. So it's like, you never know when we share our recovery, who is going to bite and take the seed, right? Uh, And I was so grateful she pushed me because at my first meeting, I knew I was home. Was she already in the program? Nope. Nope. No. And did you guys both stick? No, she didn't. I did. Mm. Yeah. She left. Not you, she, she did a couple of years, but when was the last time you talked to her? Oh gosh. We had a major falling out when I was about 26. It was a pretty unhealthy friendship. I mean, actually that was probably the Shocking. first time. Yeah, (laughs) that was probably the first codependent relationship I had, uh, because my codependency tends to show up more with women than men. Um, And I was super dependent on her. We would talk all day, uh, several times a day. I really needed her approval. She needed mine. Uh, It was. And so I think by the time we bottomed out, I think I got healthy enough to realize that this isn't working. And she we just didn't have anything in common anymore because my recovery was growing and hers, I don't think was at that point. It's very similar to like when people get sober, right. And they realize yep. that the friends that they had before they're, they don't really have anything in common. Yeah. So really briefly, like with, when it comes to like overeating recovery, I mean, it's such mm-hmm. a, I mean, it's similar to, it's similar to relationships in the sense, well, I guess you don't have to have relationships, but like, Right. You know, you kind of do, but like you have to eat. Right. So it's like so different than alcohol or drugs where like, you know, you're just abstinent. Right. Um, so I don't know, like, is there anything pertaining to recovery when it relates to overeating Mm -hmm. that you think would be particularly useful for people to hear or understand? Yeah. 
our abstinence looks different. It's basically abstaining from compulsive eating. So most people who have food issues gravitate to certain types of food, sugar, carbs, fat, everybody's different. Um, the great thing about OA is that it's not a diet mm -hmm. and they're not going to tell you what to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I got to pick my own abstinence. And I knew for me, if I kept eating refined sugar, all the sweet stuff, I was never going to get clean with the food. So that's where my starting point was, is I just stopped the cookies, candies, crap. Uh, and that was a huge change. But the great thing is, is that some people come to OA and say, sugar isn't a problem. I just eat too much. So everybody has a different starting point. Um, so there's a lot of freedom to figure out your own abstinence and what it, what's going to work for you. Have you had what you would consider a relapse? No, knock on wood. Wow. I don't, I don't know why, because my abstinence is no sugar, no binging. Cause you know, I would definitely eat large quantities of food. Uh, but I've stuck to the program. I've done a lot of therapy. I, I, I did one of the inner child John Bradshaw workshops years ago. It was really cool. So I know all of that helps, but I think there's also an element of recovery where I don't know why I haven't relapsed. Mm -hmm. I've just not, I've just kept coming back. I would say that that's probably not super common. Like, is it similar to like with AA and NA? Like what, like relapse yeah. is very common. Yeah, it is. It is common, but, but we have a lot of people, long timers as well, but see the difference also is that our abstinence is imperfect. Mm -hmm. I am not going to tell you, and I, my food has been perfect for 32 years. No, it hasn't that there's no way I've, I've eaten a little bit extra. I've had a bag of potato chips, but the difference is, is I've never gone to my old eating mm -hmm. patterns where I dive headfirst into the food. I don't do that anymore. What about sugar? Like, do you ever have like a dessert? No, no, uh-uh. No, it's not worth it. And, and the only reason it's not worth it. And I think people who are recovering from drinking can relate is, you know, if you have that one drink, you're going to mm -hmm. want 10. If I want a cookie, I'll probably want cake. I'll probably want a bunch of other stuff. So it's easier for me to not have any, because I know I can't have one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have no it. desire to have just one drink. So do you have no desire to just have one cookie? <laughs> For the most part, I don't. Sometimes the smell can get to me and I'll have to leave a room. Like I can't live in a donut shop. Like if I went into a donut <laughs> shop, that that, ugh, that would be yucky. Um, but most other foods, yeah, it's like, you know what? I know that's poison for me and I can't do it. Mm. So let's talk about your second bottom. Mm. Relationships. A series of hitting, I call it hitting butt. Cause I just think that's kind of fun to say <laughs> hitting rock, butt. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I was 13 years in to my program and I realized my relationships were not where I wanted them to be. I was still lonely. I still didn't understand why I was so frustrated and resentful. And it was because I was giving way too much and I was expecting the other person to fill me up. Were you already a therapist at this point? No. Okay. Uh, well, no, uh, 13 years. I was just getting back into it because I had had a long break when I had my son. So I had the schooling, I had the licensing, but I was just beginning to uh, go back into my practice. So yeah, it was definitely, um, it was definitely a time where I could see that I couldn't, I couldn't manage my relationships. I was again at step one, like, okay, now what? And I had to realize that I was the common denominator. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't about them. And, and I, but that, you know, when you, when you talk about the laundry list of ACOA, it's like that dependency and that desire to get approval from someone else is so addicting. Uh, especially when you grow up in a dysfunctional family, that it's really hard to see that we actually have to do that for ourselves. Cause even in recovery, I thought if only I get the right friend, hmm. then, good, then I'll be good. I really didn't see that I was putting all my emotional eggs in their basket for a long time. I didn't see that. Was there like a one particular aha moment where you realized, oh shit, I'm the problem? Uh, 
when I first started Al-Anon for sure, because I knew my relationships were out of whack. And then I had another, probably my biggest bottom was about six years ago when a codependent friendship ended. Uh, very suddenly she said, you know, she wrote me a letter and, you know, kind of was the kiss off. And that got my attention because I didn't think the relationship was unhealthy. I thought my recovery was rocking and rolling and I was all happy, but I totally missed that I got dependent on somebody again. So it was a hugely humble lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that the like codependency and in, in friendships is an interesting um, route to take, but first, so I've had, mm-hmm. you know, a ton of people on to, to speak about codependency and everybody has their own definition of like what it yeah. is. So what do you, what do you define as codependency? So to me, codependency is where you focus on others at your own expense. You really look outside of yourself for your worth rather than knowing how to do it yourself. And there's usually a component of either rescuing, uh, fixing, or controlling the other person because that's how we get safe is if I can only help somebody else and be the hero or control somebody else's behavior so I feel good, then I'm good. But then our whole being, right, is dependent on that relationship, not on ourselves, which is super dangerous. Do you view it as trauma-based? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think codependency happens because the adult doesn't know how to parent and their needs, whether it's their addicted mental health issues, inability to parent, their needs overshadow the kids' needs. Because, you know, the hardest part about parenting is that you do have to sometimes put your child's needs above your own. And if you don't know how to do that, and hang on to some semblance of yourself and your own self-care, you know, it, it's going to get dysfunctional really fast. Mm-hmm. So what were some experiences that you had as a kid that you feel like bred your codependency? Definitely my siblings. Um, my siblings were older than me, uh, six years and four years older. So I didn't get the natural experience of playing with my siblings. They had completely different friends. And I thought something was wrong with me because of that. And so even though we all grew up in the same house, uh, because they were a product of my mom's first marriage, I was the product of my mom's second marriage. I didn't really, I felt more like an only child in some ways because we didn't, we didn't play together. And so I think that kind of became the template for me in relationship and friendship where I would go to school and I had no idea how to make a friend. And I was pretty, um, I was overweight. I wore corrective shoes. I mean, I was definitely the geek and, uh, you know, the, the person that nobody really wanted to play with. And I had no skills, absolutely no skills on how to make a friend. So I would try to, I remember one time in fourth grade, I, I cut out magazine pictures of Charlie's Angels and gave them to boys because I thought maybe that would work. <laughs> <laughs> did it no oh no. bummer boys, boys I was gonna try it no no yeah <laughs> yeah so you know I I think people talk about you know parents and the impact of parents which is true but I think the impact of siblings can be just as harmful and I think that's so interesting because I'm wondering that, that because um, it was sibling related. That's why it showed up more so for you in friendship as opposed to in romantic relationships. Cause yep. for me, I mean, it's shown up in romance. Don't get me wrong. Like there definitely have been, um, I've definitely had like codependent relationships more mm-hmm. so in my early sobriety, but it was like, yeah. there was a lot of insecurity there. Um, mm-hmm. Because I too, like, I was just like a, like, you know, when I was drinking from the ages of like 14 to like 19, I didn't have any female friendships, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh mostly because I chose a boyfriend, but also because I was just like, not somebody that you wanted to be friends with because I was so sloppy, but through recovery. And in the first several years of my recovery, I really learned how to be a friend. Mm -hmm. And I remember in early sobriety, I would have fear that anytime I went out of town, that my friends were going to decide that they didn't like me anymore. Mm, uh-huh. And so like feeling like I needed to constantly check in to make sure that, cause that was kind of a pattern for me too, of just kind of being um, 
like abandoned without any sort of warning signs, you know? Mm, and so that kind mm-hmm. of created a hypervigilance. Yeah. But I felt like I got to a place where I did feel comfortable in friendships, but when I was in a relationship, in a romantic relationship, mm-hmm. that's when those behaviors would start to show up again with friendships. Mm, uh-huh. And I became like the needy, emotional vampire. Right. It oh, really too. pushed a lot of friends away because of it. Oh my God. Yeah. You're singing my song. I totally did that. One time I called someone six times in a weekend <laughs> and by Monday. Only six? Oh. I would call like six times in an hour. Like, cause <laughs> I need to like constantly be on the phone with somebody. I had that too. I had that too. Yep. And I think that to me was the total missing piece that I didn't get for a long time is that that was the problem. I, I totally missed that in my recovery for a long time because I kept thinking, well, I just have to get a better relationship. I didn't realize that I was literally draining people by calling them too much and expecting them to fill me up. It was really funny how, at least for me, I think there's just some gaps that we really can't control how long it takes to get a certain issue. And that was a huge gap in my recovery. Yeah. And it was also like really important for me to understand as well, because in the seventh grade, I became the girl that no one was allowed, wanted to be friends with, mm-hmm. or was allowed to be friends with. Mm-hmm. And I think like that really tarnished, like really impacted me. I think just as much as my family dynamics, sure. you know, like that, like really, really, really impacted me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was freeing to know, to learn that it wasn't because there was something inherently wrong with me. Cause that was actually my biggest fear when I got sober was like, what if I'm just mm-hmm. somebody that no one ever wants to be friends with? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But I also <laughs> think that it shows the trauma aspect of it as to where like at a certain point in my recovery, when I wasn't in a relationship or in that hellhole, I was mm-hmm. a good friend. Those behaviors came out of me once that, that abandonment fear got triggered. Mm, yeah. Well, we, I mean, codependent behaviors are coping mechanisms that we grow up with. It's just in adulthood, they screw us. So what would you say are some differences between the ways in which codependency shows up in a romantic relationship versus a friendship? You know, I think there's a lot of similarities in unhealthy dependency, you know, one-sided where you're doing most of the giving, uh, sacrificing your needs for the other person. But I think in friendship, especially in women friendship, it can be easier to miss because women get really close. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how many movies, like I, I've been binge watching Firefly Lane and it's like, what the hell is that? Oh, it's such a good show on Netflix uh, about female friendship. And, you know, we are known to have deep relationships with women, with each other. And sometimes the boundaries get blurred. So it's harder to spot codependency, I think, in friendship, because at least for me, when I had that friendship six years ago, I thought everything was great. I had no clue until she finally said, uncle, I'm out. Can we let's dive into this friendship? Sure. So I thought because my pattern was slam, bam, you're going to now be my best friend, right? How did y'all meet? We were both therapists and we met at a conference and I took it slow, just like, I mean, I know it sounds like dating, but literally I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do the same thing I've always done. We What was your pattern? Like that you would just get too intense. Was that your, what was the role that you would play typically? Oversharing. I immediately connect with you. I immediately trust you. I, because I'm a people person. So like, and I do, I I do trust my intuition. So I I felt like this was a good person, but I didn't do that. I waited. We cultivated a friendship over, I don't know, several months. And then, but once we got tight, that's when I started not knowingly depending more and more on her. And we would talk almost every day and I got so reliant on that. But one of the thing, one of the red flags I missed was early on, she said, I don't really like a lot of contact. And I said, hmm. And it did register because normally before in my recovery, someone would have said that and I would have totally glossed over it. But 
So what I did with that information is I said, okay, then I'm, I'm going to make sure I keep myself in check and I'm not going to overcall. Do you think that that's something normal for somebody to say, or is that weird for somebody to say in general? No, that, that is that, well, that could be a boundary because it was a vague comment. She didn't say she didn't want any contact. She just said she didn't want a lot. And I didn't, I should have followed up and said, what does, what that, does that mean? mean? No. That would have been good because if she had said, oh, like once or twice a week or once or twice a month, then I would know what the boundary was. And then I could decide what I needed as a result. I mean, was she saying that in response to something or is that just like a random comment that was thrown out? No, I think she, I don't remember, but I think it was just a, a comment. And so I didn't call her a lot. She would call me. And so it was a pretty even exchange. But when the relationship blew up, she said she felt obligated to call me for, because of her own codependency. And that's when I realized, okay, well, there's no way I could have known that. But I lost myself in that friendship again. And that was... In what ways? Well, because I relied so much on her that when she ended the friendship, it mm -hmm. felt like a divorce. I mean, I was in heavy grief for several months. Were you this completely caught off guard? Oh, completely. And I was devastated. And do you think that there were, I mean, obviously you mentioned that comment in the beginning of the friendship, but like, were there other red flags you feel like you overlooked? I think that was the biggest one um, because I thought things were going well, but Again, it's like, I had to call her. I had to, there was that compulsion. So it really, the red flag really was more on me. Yeah. What but, it was, yeah. Doing to you internally. Yeah. And I just missed it because I was so happy to have a friend and it was kind of like chasing mm. that, that sibling I didn't have. Just like you said, that was so insightful. It's like, I was chasing having a sister and it's like, that's dangerous. And had I known that I would have been like now, if ever I get that feeling of, oh, I can't wait to call you, that is a sign that, okay, this is a person I could get addicted to and I can't go down that road again because that pain was hell and I will never put myself through that again. So I'm super aware mm -hmm. <laughs> now that I won't, I, I'm very cautious in what my boundaries are. Did you ever speak to her ever again? We did. We, we had a conversation and I could tell she wasn't really accountable for her part. And for me, that's a deal breaker. Um, but to be fair, at the time, I probably wasn't accountable for my part either because it took me a long time to see my own part in that. Yeah, it's really hurtful. It is. And yet for me, like having a relationship with myself was the one thing I could care less about <laughs> in, in my recovery. And, and that's what it gave me is that ability to say, okay, I can't keep looking to other people for my higher power. I have got to discover a relationship with myself that's more healthy, not just, a, oh, I like myself. It's, can I spend time with myself? Do I have to make compulsive phone calls during the day? And now I don't have to do that. And I'm super grateful, but I had to go through hell to do it. Before we, you know, before you talk about what that process looked like for you, was there, mm -hmm. um, was there like a pattern or a template in the type of like friendship that you would have like her, like, was this a similar pattern to what other friendships had looked like in the past? Yeah, I would usually find someone I was super attracted to, like they were nice to me, they were, we had nice connection, we could chat about deep stuff. And then that would hook me in. And I would just be like, Oh, my God, now I found the sister, the friend. And, you know, it just, it never worked out. I always, it ended up crashing and burning usually. Yeah, I can really relate to that too, like being an only child, and then also like having fucked up parents of like, my friends are my family. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And in adulthood, you know, friends are everything because, you know, they're kind of the super glue of life, you know, well, all relationships can be, but I think friendship, especially, you know, is so precious. So were you really focused on codependency in your practice at this point? Yeah, I was definitely starting to be for sure, because I, I saw my own gaps and I was super excited. Like I, I wrote a, a self-trust journal because that was my gap. Like, oh my God, I did not trust myself at all. And so it- What do you mean by that? 
that is well, another thing that I want to talk about is self-trust. So, but what so, do you do in that situation? Like it's the opposite of gaslighting. It's actually the antidote to gaslighting, right? Is to actually trust my own perceptions and how I feel. And what were you not trusting though, in that particular friendship? Well, I didn't trust that I, that she had said what she said and that there probably were other signs I missed, but I didn't recognize them at the time because I wasn't focused on honoring my own experience. I was focused on getting her approval and keeping it. So when you're as a codependent, when our focus is outside of ourselves, we don't trust ourselves because we want somebody else to define what's good, what, you know, what's bad. And I didn't have that ability to say, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. Or I'm getting too attached because I didn't want to pay attention. Do you feel like it was abusive at all? No, I think. I think the only part that was really hard for me was that she didn't own her part that Mm -hmm. she said she would call, which gave me the idea that it was a mutually beneficial friendship, but she was lying about it. That's the piece that was hard for me to realize that, wow, I, I thought she was wanting to be friends and she did, but at a much uh, lower level. And I didn't know that. Yeah, I think what's really hard and what's been hurtful for me too is when the other person is not willing or in a place where they can have the difficult conversation. Right. Or they can't own their part. That's huge. That's huge. But to me, if you can find that person who is willing to be accountable for their own behavior, far out, you've probably made a lifelong friend. Because those people are big. I really do try to, I want to know, like, I want to know if I've done something that has hurt, you know, especially like, you know, my sense of humor is sharp and, uh, (laughs) you know, I know that there's got to be times where like, I can take it too far and I don't ever want to hurt someone's feelings. So like, I'd rather, that's the worst feeling is like, oh yeah. Is when like, you don't know, like what the fuck you did. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You know? And I think it's like, a lot of it is, is the other person's um, inability to have difficult conversations. Yeah. But you've done a hell of a lot of work for you to get to that point. I'll bet. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and that's where your recovery is really going to help you have healthier relationships. Absolutely. Um, so talk about how you cultivated that relationship with yourself. I really let myself grieve, uh, after that friendship ended, which meant more time alone. I was crying a lot. I was sharing a lot in my meetings about it. Um, but I started spending more time by myself and just purposely spending time with me and even though like I could go to the movies by myself, I could do stuff like that, but to really enjoy my own company, I never really wanted to do. I didn't see a need. And this, after that, I realized because I put all my emotional eggs in her basket, it's like I had to learn how to take them out and to really have my friendships, but have me and my higher power at the center, not other people at the center. And then me, as an afterthought. And so that took some time to really emotionally have more of a connection with myself. It was kind of more of a purposeful thing, you know, like instead of I'm going to call you, I'm going to make five calls today. I didn't do that anymore. I literally would sit with myself. And if I was upset, I would talk to God out loud in my car. I would do some writing. I would do things that would help me rely more on myself. Learning how to self-soothe. Yeah. Instead of always looking outside of myself and that, you know, and some people it's amazing, get, get it a lot quicker in recovery than I did, but that was a slow grow for me. No, it's because that feeling is like the reason for everything. It's like why we drank. It's why you ate. It's, right. You know? Right. That's true. That's totally what, true. What are, do you have any suggestions for, I mean, you said that you spent more time with yourself. Like how do you, how does one do that? Like in a healthy way? Well, I mean, to me, it was as simple as taking a walk and not listening to anything or making a phone call, mm. but literally just 
experiencing what it was like to be in my own skin. Because in recovery, the first several years, I didn't want to be in my own skin. I was like, uh, that's no fun. I want to be in somebody else. I want to be with someone else. <laughs> so to actually just realize that maybe it's difficult to be in your own body. And maybe that's the mm. befriending that needs to start happening. You know? Yeah. When am I never, when am I not like listening to something or. Right. You know? Right. And that's where paying attention to your body, because your body is going to hold all your emotions. So if I'm feeling like my throat is closing, that's usually because I don't want to say something or my gut is turning, I'm anxious. I mean, that gives me a lot of information so that I can do the next best thing to take care of myself versus trying to glob on to someone else and use them as a Band-Aid. I think it's so hard too, because we're just so overstimulated and like addicted to our screens and our every, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's so hard to like get out of that. You talked about the desire that you had to have the relation with the relationship with your siblings growing up. Like what does that look Mm -hmm. like for you in adulthood? So the most powerful thing I did in my early recovery was I I think I was on step four. I must've been. And I was at my friend's house and I think I was like four years in and I called my sibling and said, this is how you treated me. And this is how I felt about it. Mm. And they did not like that. They, of course, you know, were pretty upset, but I I wasn't blaming. I just said, I just need to let you know, this is how it impacted me. Mm -hmm. And that changed the dynamic because it finally got me to be the adult and not the victim of what happened because they had their own stuff they were reacting to in my, in, in our childhood. So I, as an adult, now I see it, then I didn't, but like naming what happened really freed me. And it gave me a clean slate to say, okay, now we can start a different relationship, but I had to confront that because otherwise I would have always been the kid. Have you had a chance to talk to them about like what the, cause I think that that's so interesting how different siblings experiences are growing up in the same home. And I know that they were like a bit older than you, but yeah, were they, were your parents still together? Were like, Mm -mm. no. Okay. No, No. I'm saying when they were being raised. Oh, well, they were only married for about 18 months. So they lived with my dad uh, for that, but you know, not even for 18 months because he was probably at sea for most of that time. So yeah, they didn't, uh, but yeah, we definitely had different experiences for sure, especially with our fathers. Uh, and we could probably talk about that now. Both my siblings aren't into recovery. They're not into this stuff, but they, you know, we've had good conversations, but for me, it's been like accepting them for who they are and finding ways to connect, uh, because they're not in recovery and that's okay. They don't have to be, you know, I don't, I'm not on that bandwagon anymore, but everybody should be in recovery because that's an individual choice. And it, and it's totally cool if some people don't want it. Yeah. But a lot of people need it. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. For, for sure. For sure. Um, so I was reading some of your blogs and I wanted to talk a little bit more on like the, the self-trust aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been like struggling with like a lot of like self-sabotaging behaviors and procrastination. And um, ever since I had on Susan Anderson a couple of weeks ago, where she was talking about kind of like the outer child and and connecting Mm. with your inner child. And so I've been trying to like connect with my inner child. And one of the exercises that she has is to like, you know, pick a particular goal that you have that you have not been getting done and ask your inner child, like how they feel about that. And what she told me is that when I make these promises that I'm going to do certain things the next day and I don't do them, well, it feels the same way as like when my mom would tell me that she was going to stop drinking and she wouldn't. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious, like with your expertise as a therapist and and all of that stuff, like we think a lot about um, like low self-worth and self-esteem as far as like related to um, procrastinating, Mm self-sabotaging. I'm curious, like what you think about like this aspect of like when we are habitually disappointed that we, I mean, I guess it's just all self-abandonment, but. Yeah. Well, I think there can be, and I do this in my own therapy with my own therapist is that she helps me like literally get into a meditative state and be with my inner child. Because I totally hear when you're saying, I'll 
you know, we, we make a goal for tomorrow, right? But that's the pattern, especially if you grew up with hearing, I'll, I'll change tomorrow, I'll, I'll stop drinking tomorrow, then of course, we're going to do the same thing, because that's what we learned. But one way I think to get out of that is literally to like, do it right now, give your, your child, your inner child, that time right now in meditation, or writing a letter to them, and asking them, what are you upset about right now? What do you need right now? And and usually my inner child is, I mean, she's going to either be screaming, well, not anymore, but or running around uh, with her head cut off because she's hyper. <laughs> um, but all of that is helpful information because then I know where she's at. So I have to be careful not to promise her something because that's that's mm-hmm. so easy. But to actually just make that connection and be with her and go, yeah, I get that you're running around in circles right now, you know, and this is like one of the things I got was a fatty, (laughs) a little stuffed animal that I love. Um, And that can be my representation of what I need to hold when I'm feeling empty or when I'm wanting that connection with her because I think I used to have a stuffed dog that that was oh I love that thing I was so mad I got rid of it I don't know how I did that and I could never find it again but it's like having that physical representation of your inner child I think can be helpful because all all they need from us is a willingness to connect so I'm somebody that like is had a like initially I just thought it was so fucking corny like all the inner child stuff and I'm sure there's yeah. plenty of people listening right now who feel yeah. the same way. Yeah. So when you're working one-on-one with a client, like how do you mm-hmm. how do you ease them into that like process or do you have any tips as far as like yeah. small steps to take to start cultivating yeah. a relationship with your inner child? So we usually talk about what they're like what they were like as a kid, like when you were four, when you were eight, like what about, like, I feel like a lot of people say, like, I don't remember anything from when I was a kid. Well, yeah. And that may be a sign that they're not ready to do the work yet. Mm. Um, Because you can't do inner child work when you have no memory of it, right? That your, your defense mechanism is protecting you because you're not ready. But if they have uh, an image of themselves as a kid that they can uh, bring up, then I start with that. Like, what was that inner child? Like, what, what were you like as a kid? What did you want? What was painful for you? And then to start kind of cultivating that knowledge of that part of you, and then talk about that's a part of us is, you know, the things that didn't get healed in us are still inside of us. And so some of it is kind of educating them first. And then the two ways I would have them work is well, not in session, but they could either write a letter to their inner child with the dominant hand being the adult, the non-dominant hand being the child. Responding. Uh, because, yeah. Cause you, you can literally, your adult can say, hi, what's wrong. I'm not sure what I, what you need. And then your non-dominant hand would literally the writing will look totally childlike anyway, but it's, it's very powerful to access that. And then Honestly, my normal hand looks childish anyways. Like I never write anymore. And when I do write now, I'm like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) That's funny. You say that because my handwriting has gotten really bad over the last years. (laughs) Uh, But then, you know, I think meditation and like working with a hypnotherapist, somebody that can guide you into breathing and just imagining that space uh, but you have to be ready and it's okay that sometimes that takes a while. Mm. So I want another video, or I don't know if it was a video or a blog, but I think something that would be very beneficial for people listening for more of a romantic rom- codependent romantic relationships. As far as I know that there's plenty of people and I can think of a few off the top of my head who are in relationships that they know that they need to get out of. Mm-hmm. Um who aren't there yet. Right. I know what that feels like. Yep. Um, What is your thoughts, feelings, suggestions, Mm -hmm. anything? Well, the first thing is, do you have enough support? And are you an Al-Anon? Because if you're having relationship issues and you're in recovery, I would definitely recommend checking out Al-Anon because that is the, 
program that deals with relationship. Because if you don't, or a therapist or a coach or a support group, like your Pantheon group, Mm -hmm. somewhere where you have a tribe, because you can't leave a relationship if you're isolated. It's way too difficult. The other thing is, you know, there's reasons why we're not ready to leave. And we have to honor that instead of saying to ourselves, oh my God, I should be leaving. I should be leaving. What's wrong with me that I'm not Not shaming the shit out of ourselves? Yeah. Cause it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why in Al-Anon they say, don't make any major decisions about your relationship the first year, because you're probably not ready. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, myself, I remember I didn't leave a certain relationship for a long time. And then one day I woke up and I was done and I knew it because I had done all the work previously. So I could check it, the boxes and then realize, okay, now I'm done. But a year before that, it's like I was beating myself up saying, oh, God, what's wrong with me? I'm 80% there. I'm 90% there. But we can't control when we get over that hump. But we can do the footwork in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember my therapist just saying, like, there's clearly more of a lesson for you to learn here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some, you know, Pia Melody, uh, she, she was big in the eighties, big codependency, love addiction expert. I'm sure you know her. And, you know, I remember she said some people, their backgrounds are so traumatic that they will never leave. And that is their choice. And they have a right to make that choice. And it's like, even though I don't think their choice in a way, well, you're right. Because I think when we're, when we have a lot of trauma, we don't, feel like we have enough skill or the fear of being alone outweighs everything else. So they would rather stay in an abusive relationship than risk being alone because it's that scary. And to me, that's an individual choice that, you know, we can't judge because there are going to be some people that choose to stay because they can't imagine leaving. I don't think that's most people, but I do think there's a portion of people that may not. And we have to make that okay. And they have to make that okay for themselves because that inter- that acceptance may someday lead them to get the courage. We just, we don't know, you know? Another blog I saw of yours was like, can we fix a codependent relationship? And I think yeah. that that's interesting. I think potentially be like a bit of a slippery slope, but uh-huh. I'd love for you to yeah. dive into that more. I just did a short on this where the one thing you can do to stop being codependent is stop over-functioning in the relationship because that's going to immediately tell you when you, and what I mean by that is you pull back, right? And instead of me doing all the calling, me being the cheerleader all the time, me being super intense, I step back and let the other person come to me and have there be more space and have me not rescue and fix and try to cheer them up and take responsibility for their problems. If I can step back and do less, that's going to tell me if the relationship can survive because either the other person is going to be invited to do more, which could even out the connection, or they're going to flip out and go, why aren't you taking care of me? And that's a good sign, right? Because if they're flipping out and they have no desire to change, then you know that the relationship probably can't be fixed. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> I know, simple. I try to do simple. So what about with parenting? Like how how old is your son? He's 24 now. Okay. Um, the one thing, well, my codependency showed up in my parenting by having a hard time setting limits. Uh, because he was, he was definitely a kid outside the box. So, uh, trying to get him to do chores, trying to get him to do certain things was really tough. But what I had to do is I had to ask myself, okay, what's the hill I want to die on as a parent? Respect, respect, treating others well, that, and, and expressing your feelings in a healthy way. Those were, were my biggies. Um, but I think a lot of parents get trapped in codependency because they see their kid as an extension of themselves and their own success. And for me, I had to, I, I learned that right away because I had a kid outside the box. So my kid was not going to be an A student. He was not going to be the star of the football team. He had other attributes. He was an amazing hockey player. He ended up being able to make really good friends as I taught him and he learned more skills socially. But it's like, I had to separate who he was from who I was as a parent. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the rub in codependency is that we think, you know, oh, if my kid, you know, that's why I hate those bumper stickers that say, my student's an honor student. I absolutely, if I could burn every one of those, I probably <laughs> would. Because that's not. Mine would have said, like, my kid's in rehab and she's in eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, because it's one measure of a child's success. It's not the totality of who they are as a human being. So that's kind of my my complaint. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have going on? What do you want to promote? What are you doing? You got your uh, your YouTube channel, yes. your private practice. Do you ever do like workshops or what do you what do you got going on, lady? I do. I have a calming your anger. A uh, four-week class that I do every quarter, uh, especially since the pandemic, that was big. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about anger yeah. and codependency because I don't think that that's something that we've really I've talked about much on the podcast. So, how about oh, yeah, that's something that I have a hard time connecting. Like I don't get angry yeah. very often. Well, most people don't until they realize they do. So, like for <laughs> me, <laughs> so most people are either the rager or the stuffer. Okay. Those are kind of, and the the third style is uh, the jabber, which is the person who goes indirect, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I, of course I'm going to help you. Don't I always help you? But then you're like, like passive aggressive, passive aggressive. Right. So for me, I grew up seeing rage. So I decided as a result, I'm going to stuff my anger, but stuffing your anger, even though it makes you look good, I don't know about you, but in relationship, it will leak out eventually. And and it also like give you like diseases. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're, you're going to be super stressed. So it's like anger management is really about emotion management because we have to realize that anger tells us that something isn't okay. There's a red flag signaling that either someone has crossed your boundary, someone has said or done something that is bothering you. And that's super important information in relationship because that anger is going to be that red flag that tells you something isn't okay that you need to handle. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to change the other person, but you might have to set a boundary. You might have to leave the situation. You might have to assess your expectations. I mean, So to me, anger is super, super important, but we have to have a different concept of anger being healthy versus anger being toxic. What about anger towards ourselves? Like what are healthy ways to get that out? Well, I think the first thing is acknowledging it and saying, yeah, maybe I am pissed at myself and here's why. But there also needs to be a shift and a compassion for you know, if you're angry at yourself for doing certain things, you know, can you have compassion that most of us who have done messed up things in our life, especially pre-recovery and sometimes during recovery, it's because we didn't know any better. You know, if you don't have the rule book for life, which to me is, you know, a program, of course your life's going to be a shit show because there's way too many stressors out there to know what the hell to do. I mean, so we have to have compassion that, you know, you did the best you could, but sure it wasn't enough, but most people do the best they can. And it's not enough because mm-hmm. they don't have the skills. We don't have a schooling in, in grammar school that says, how do you be a friend? How do you feel good about yourself? How do you be in relationship? How do you process anger? We don't have any of that. What to do if your parents are an alcoholic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think part of this is just acknowledging it and being willing to have some compassion that, yeah, you know what, you did the best you can and you can do better. And that's what recovery is all about. Hmm. Well, where can people find you? Uh, so my website is counselingrecovery.com. Uh, I also that have a, a good URL to, to snag. You know, originally it was recovery counseling. Um, and I'm really glad that that was full because I like counseling recovery uh, better. <laughs> Uh, and then I have a free um, relationship checklist that's going to help people assess their relationships. Mm. I have lots of free resources, but that one has been really popular because a lot of times we don't know what's healthy and what isn't. And this is a pretty in-depth uh, three checklist guide. One's your, who's supportive in your life and supportive qualities. Then who are the challenging people, challenging qualities. And then what's your own relationship behavior look like? Because if you know those three, you're going to have a an idea of how healthy the relationship is. Okay. I'll, I'll include a link to that in the, 
in the show notes. So this has been lovely. Oh, it's been so great. Thank you so much for having me. You have a rock ass podcast. (laughs) I'm trying. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that you could benefit from. As always, I know that you did. As always, if you didn't, seek help. And damn the join Patreon (laughs) while you're at it. Uh, Thanks again to Michelle. Uh, I, she said that she's willing to do a live Q&A for the Patreon. So I will get that set up shortly and then check the show notes for, for all of her shit. Um, you guys, I got furniture. My shit came today. Finally, it was, um, when did it get picked? Oh, November 29th was when the movers picked up my, uh, my shit. Uh, so I think that this is the end of the saga. It was a really kind of crappy move. I just want to say I'm very impressed with how I handled it. I never really spun out. I just got a little bit pissed off like last week about the furniture. But other than that, I've been kind of cool, calm, and collected. So what else? Um, how do you feel about a guy describing himself as, um, as adorable? I had somebody from an app say that. I'm curious. What do you think? Adorable? It's like my cozy. I don't know if you heard that before. I had one time I was on a uh, messaging with a guy from an app and he must have said like the word cozy in like six, six different times within, I don't know, a couple, a couple of, a couple of uh, texts back and forth and the cozy weirded me out. Um, and that's it, y'all. I will see you next week. I am going to have on this guy, guy named Ross uh, Ro- Rosenberg. Shout out Dominic, aka Vest, for making the suggestion. So if, if you know who the hell Ross is, and if you have any questions, suggestions, let a girl know. And I will see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super mama, super excited. Can I hear it? going to be a good day, I promise. Let it all go.